Welcome back to Detroit is Different, the podcast. Today I got a very, very special guest. It's Dr. Robert Bland. He was a professor of mine, also a very close friend of my maternal grandmother, Mary Lee Brown, and also just one of the greatest thinkers when it comes to his passion towards education and seeing how school and knowledge are something that can transform a life, a family, and a people. I really got into this interview a whole lot. We cover so many topics about Detroit's history, his time in education, and also his look at family, his look at faith, his look at staying committed and building upon yourself so that you can know how to use knowledge. This is one of the people that I was really looking forward to interviewing, as I always do. Thank you for checking this out. Thank you so much for supporting DetroitIsDifferent.com. This month's theme, September 2014, is education. And I couldn't think of anybody better when I scripted out what I'm going to have every month than Dr. Robert Bland. He is a friend of my grandma. That's a mother dear who's passed away. He was also one of my professors. He's also a friend of the family. And I've known him. He stands his ground. He's been involved in so many things in education. And I think that his story is going to be something unique for everybody. How are you doing, Dr. Bland? I'm doing fine. Okay, I'm going to need you to speak up a little bit into the mic. If I know lurching is one of those things, scooting, over, scooting up a little bit. All right, um, when you say, how did your journey in education start? We'll get to that, but more so I like to always start like my connection to you. So you were teaching, you were a professor of a class at Lewis College of Business, and I was sitting in class. And you were my professor. And that was a strange class in the sense of like it was just a mix of different people. When you were teaching at or being a professor at Lewis College of Business for those introductory classes, what was one of your things that you thought into being in a predominantly black school in the city of Detroit that you wanted to introduce the students starting their college journey? What were you thinking? Several things. Uh, Lewis, I came by Lewis because at 35, I made the decision that by 55, I was going to spend the rest of my life working at a black college or working in the church. At 47, when I was the acting president at Merrill Palmer, I saw the ad for Lewis in the uh, paper. So I said, oh, there's my dream job. And I saw it as that. And I took uh, 35, 40 years of experience teaching, working, studying, and education to Lewis when I was 47. Mm -hmm. So I got an eight-year jump on my, one of my dream jobs. I have been a Christian person all of my life. Mm -hmm. And as a result of uh, that, I have worked in the church uh, literally most of my life. Okay. And so I'm on both dream jobs at once. Now, at Lewis, one of the things that I was hoping I was bringing to that situation was a experienced black man who was blessed to have some education and some experience in education and I wasn't afraid to take on any one who came along 
about how they should be thinking about education, the black community, the black family, and our history and our future. Okay, now when you say that uh those were the things, definitely not being afraid to take on any of the students and putting your experience there with it. The first question that I have to go to is, what drew you to education in the first place? I decided when I was in, I think I was in seventh grade, I was 13 or 14, I decided that I wanted to be a college professor. Mm -hmm. And I said it then, and then I did not say it again for a long time, but I pursued it. I acted on that by uh, when I was in the military, after the Korean War ended and I was still in the military, I started to attend Safari University in Tokyo, uh, Japan, uh, on the, in evenings and on weekends. And the uh, in, at the International Division, it was taught in English. The regular college at Sapphire was in Japanese, and that was during the day. Mm -hmm. And so I started to do things like that. The uh, Air Force had uh, uh, correspondence courses that you could take. So I took college algebra, trigonometry, uh, an English class, and at Sophia I took uh, physics, I took algebra too, and courses like that, just to build, you know, some background and a resume. So uh, I have spent going from the bachelor's to the doctorate. Uh, I've been going to school for 21 years part-time. I had hoped, coming out of the military at uh, 23, that I was going to get a PhD by the time I was 30. I met my wife, and all of that went out the window. The <laughs> okay. degree and everything. Okay. And we got married, and we've been blessed to be married for 57 years. And uh, three gorgeous uh, children uh, who are contributors to um, our society, and that was one of my other goals. You don't raise children just to be children. You raise them to be contributors to the society and its perpetuation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are doing that, and I'm very happy and pleased about that. But that's what brought me to education. Uh, I'm from a family of 10. I'm the last of 10 on a farm family from Kentucky. And uh, my mother made my older sisters and brothers tutor my younger sisters and brothers and myself. And we uh, spreaded our work around the kitchen table and they had to do their homework and they had to monitor and make sure that uh, the little ones in the Bland family were doing theirs. Okay, now, I'm big on always saying this just as a hip-hop artist. At seventh grade, you're saying, I want to be a college professor. Did you know any college professors? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. At the time, who was the first college professor that you met? That you remember, I guess. I... 
<laughs> I still have a memory. Uh, even oh though, no! I mean, even sometimes I'm I can't old. think of. I can't even say that because, like, I can't think of the first rapper I met, but I can remember the one I, that sticks out. Because sometimes you meet somebody, they don't stick with you, but then mm -hmm. it's like, oh yeah, yeah. There were two that were very important to me, and one was Augustus Mack, and uh, Professor Mack was uh, majored in agriculture. And how old were you when you met him? Like Six, seven. Okay. And, and how did you meet him? Well, we live in the country, so my mother canned. Mm -hmm. And uh, Professor Mack was not only a uh, professor, he was also the county agent for black folks in Kentucky. What did that do? Well, what that meant was that he would open up the school building and those people who wanted to can you don't know anything about that. No, no uh, sir. They, you're, you're preserving food okay. in, in jars and also in cans. Mm -hmm. And my mother did a lot of that. And as a result, uh, since I was the last one in the nest, when she went to do a lot of that kind of work, she took me with her. Hmm. And that's how I met him. And then the relationship grew uh, at one point he also taught the agricultural classes at the school that I went to. And uh, we started taking agricultural classes in the country then uh, in the eighth grade. Hmm. Okay, so was it something that you saw in Professor Mack that said, okay, this is really cool and I wanna do this? Or was it just one of those things where you said, I think I want to be involved in higher education? Well, I've, I've always been a big reader, and mm -hmm. I just I love to read, and, and we had a lot of stuff to read. My mother would buy uh, old life magazines and time magazines from the uh, Salvation Army in Lexington, Kentucky, and so we always had a lot of reading material around. Mm -hmm. And so I read a lot, and uh, I saw the, not only Professor Mack, but the other teachers uh, around uh, the, the school that I went to, and I liked what they were doing. And I just said that, and then later, I made it real. Okay, now, <coughs> of, the other, of the other siblings, the brothers and sisters, did anybody else get involved in higher education or education period? Uh, yes, uh, my brother, who is older than I, has uh, a master's in uh, social work. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the sister, Pocata, who was most responsible uh, for tutoring me, um, had two years of college. Mm -hmm. And that was it. They all had good jobs doing other things. At the time, That did not require. Yes. So in, in that, even in your social circle, did anybody else say to themselves, okay, I'm really going to like, you know how they say you become, your social circle becomes what you're kind of doing. Was that true to you? Like, were you ending up being friends with a lot of other professors and a lot of other teachers? Or was it just one of those things where you had your vision and you did what you did and 
at the time, I can only imagine because of the factory jobs and because of the other opportunities at the time in America, it was other things going on as you were getting more and more involved in education. Uh, I think it was my thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was impressed uh, with other people, and I knew other people who were uh, college teachers. In fact, uh, my brother and I had uh, a paper route, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, country paper routes are different than other paper routes. It's not like, you know, you're throwing a paper, you know, at this door and this door and this door. Uh, you put a paper here, and then you walk uh, four blocks and put another paper. It do you, was do you get paid more for that? Uh, no, the pay oh, is man, the same. Oh, man. And sometimes it was a little less if I happened to miss <laughs> one of those. Yeah. But uh, I met a lot of people uh, as a result of that. And the paper route at one point was owned by uh, a college professor from the uh, University of Kentucky. Hmm. And uh, so my brother carried papers for him. And then they, he passed it on to me, and I did for a year, year and a half, two years. Okay. How learning were your mother and father? How far did they go with school? My mother was highly educated mm -hmm. and lowly schooled. Mm -hmm. She went to the sixth grade in school, but she had PhDs, uh, probably five or six of them, <laughs> in uh, managing a family. Mm -hmm. We had 14 people at one time, we had 10 kids, my mom and dad and grandparents living all in the same house on a farm. Hmm. And my mother managed the family, she managed my daddy, she managed the farm and uh, my grandparents and we ended up with uh, a little country store about the size of this that my mother started. And mm -hmm. she was canning food. We didn't ever have to buy a lot of food because we lived in the country. And she knew how to preserve food, uh, dried beans and uh, just all kinds of stuff that she knew how to. We'd kill a calf and we would eat half of it and she would can half of it. And can uh, a calf? Beef. Even, yeah, no, yeah. I know. Meaning mm -hmm. like, you can, I didn't even know you could can that. Sure, yeah. And, uh, and that she put in cans. And mm -hmm. that's why Professor Mack came into our life. So we always had food. We had food to give away. Hmm. And um, then she taught us a lot of stuff. I think she probably taught me more than the others because uh, my mom and dad got married early. She was 15, and they had five kids between 15 and 23. Then they didn't have any more until she was 38, and they had five more. And I was born when she was 47. Wow. And uh, I had older brothers and sisters who thought they were my parents. And, and they were authorized, you know, to <laughs> beat on me. <laughs> and I was authorized to hit them back. <laughs> How, how did that work out, being that you were like I, five? I, I, were always, like I always, always lost, but, 
I did it anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Now, with that, let's let's go through some more of the journey just in life. Uh, moving from Kentucky, where did you go when you finished high school there? I didn't finish high school there. I finished high school here. Oh, I didn't even know that. So yeah. you At, came uh, to Detroit before then? Yes. I I, that should, yes. should yes. definitely be a big question. I came to Detroit when I was in the uh, 10th grade. And uh, you remember I, the year? Uh, 1949. Okay. What did you think when you first, or have you visit? Did you visit Detroit before you came? Um, two or three times, yes. Okay. Yes, my many of my older sisters were here and cousins. And so upon living here, what was your impression in the 10th grade looking at Detroit? Well, I thought that it was a good city and, uh, and a great city. I uh, wasn't in, intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother-in-law had a, um, a grocery store. and Whereabouts? I had, uh, Where at? On St. Auburn and Alexandrine. There's nothing on the corner there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right across from Campbell School. And I had worked in a store, the store that my mother had, uh, a white man purchased that from my family. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave me a job of putting stuff on the shelves at that store. By that time, I was uh, 12, 13, 14. And um, he taught me how to drive. And he taught me some things about plumbing. Mm-hmm. I had learned carpentry from the agricultural courses that I took uh, since eighth grade. And uh, as a function of that, I knew how to repair things and how to build stuff. And um, and this is all like, you're like 13. 13, 14. And, so you could um, fix somebody's house and like they could I come could, to the door and they look down at you like, you sure you know how to do yeah. this? My mother used to take me with her when she would go visit uh, older people Mm-hmm. And um, I had a <clears throat> little toolbox, mm. and uh, I had a wagon, so I would put the toolbox in the wagon and the other stuff that she was taking to them, and uh, if they needed something done, uh, I would do it. Did you, did you uh, was that like you being an entrepreneur, or was it one of those things like your mom like, help Miss Jackson? Uh, I did it because my mom told me to. Okay, yeah, well, and, that's uh, a smart thing to do, bro. It, it is, it that's is. Very, yeah. def- that's yes. very, very smart. Yeah. So now, so when you got here to Detroit, you were definitely able to help out in the store with all of that experience. I, I did, and I did. And uh, I also uh, went to uh, Eastern, and uh, I had more credits than, uh, than I needed because in agriculture, you know, you take uh, some botany and some uh, zoology and you get, and they gave me credit hmm. for some of that at, uh, at Old Eastern. So I stayed at my grade level hmm. and um, added to the other things that, that I already was blessed to learn, I, uh, in addition to the academic courses, I also learned uh, uh, to machine shop, and that this was a machine shop place. I discovered when I graduated, I couldn't get a job in a machine shop, mm. even though I could do the work. It's many people I that could, have that same dilemma right now with. Yeah, I'm, I can make tools every degree. and 
all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I also learned drafting. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I played, I ran track, and I played football. Okay. Yeah. Eastern was, at the time, probably one of the, because when I hear it, it's like Miller and Eastern, like, just holding down so many black people right there on the east side right then, especially, like, looking 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. So you were in the mix of so much of the culture at the time, too, mm-hmm. right there in 10th grade. Did yes. you feel out of place coming from Kentucky, or did you just... Oh, no, no, I felt felt very much uh, in place. Mm -hmm. I could dance. Okay, that helps. uh, Yeah, I could court. um, Okay, that helps. Had a girlfriend that I was fond of and lost. Oh, man. And God was just preparing me for Matilda then, see. And this, so, uh, Mrs. Bland is right yeah, here in the house yeah. as well. We can, yeah. we can ask her about that dancing right now. <laughs> can he dance? Okay. All right. So you can dance. All right. So after Eastern, where was the journey? After Eastern, I went to uh, Wayne State for a semester. What did you take up there? Uh, I just took some uh, general, I was in a liberal arts okay. uh, course. And let me ask this and question. Uh, All right, I, I, I always hear about Wayne State, especially in the 60s and the 70s and even the 90s about like Wayne State is racist as ever. So like, uh, did you feel that then like early 50s? Or was it just as racist as any other place? It was there. Okay. There was no question about that. Uh, it, uh, it didn't bother me uh, a lot. I was able to, you know, do my work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on one of those hot spring days, um, I was walking downtown from Wayne State to catch the Mac bus to go home. And I think I had a dollar, dollar and a half in my pocket. And where Campus Marshes is now, there used to be uh, recruiters for the four branches of the military uh, mm-hmm. service. So um, I was just kind of strolling along, and one of the recruiters was outside, and we spoke. And he said, You know, I think you would make a good soldier. And I said, What you got? And we talked, talked for about an hour. Mm-hmm. And when I left there, I had signed up to go uh, to the Air Force. Hmm. So I go home and I, of pitch. I tell my mother. What was her response? Uh, and uh, she said, oh, no, you're not going over there. You're mm-hmm. not going over there. And uh, there's nobody over there that you need to do anything to. And then when I told my father, he went berserk. Mm. You're not mad at anybody over there, and they're not mad at you. And uh, you don't need to go over there. And I said, you told me when I was 18 that I could make my own decisions. I have made one. Hmm. I'm going in two days. Whoa. So I end up going to the Air Force. And uh, when I got to uh, Japan and Korea, the war was still going, and I was an air crew radio operator. So what did you do? Well, I sent messages uh, from the uh, 
the home base uh, to the uh, uh, ground radio operators. Uh, and if the weather changed and all of that, I was responsible for getting the message and any other messages that the pilot uh, gave. So when I got there, I thought I was going to be an ra airborne radio operator. That's what I wanted to do. But when I got there, I was just a, a lowly corporal, and they had uh, sergeants mm -hmm. uh, also who were radio operators, so they grounded all of the privates and all of the corporals that were radio operators. Mm -hmm. And I got caught up in that. So I then went into what was uh, called electronic uh, intelligence. And, and at that time, you know, 1952, 53, 54, China was communist China and was not our friend. However, we flew up and down the China coast checking out their radar, and then we would bring it back and analyze it and use it to build bomb targets so that if we were ever at war with China, we would know what kind of radar uh, they have and had and uh, would know how to jam that so that they would not shoot down our planes. So I did that for the next um, three, three and a half years. What was that experience like? Uh, it was a great experience. It was a great experience for me because it used uh, everything that uh, I knew then and some things that I didn't know that I had to learn. I went into the military a good man and came out a much better man. Okay, so when you came out, wait, what year is that when you got out? Um, 56. 56, and you came straight back to Detroit? Came straight back to Detroit. Okay, upon coming back to Detroit in 56, what was the, did Detroit, how much did it change? Did it feel the same? Or what did you think was happening in and around the city? It, had, it, had, uh, it was changing. Okay. The uh, Black Bottom, uh, all of the houses, some of them were already torn down, but all of the houses had a paper announcement on them that the occupants had to get out by a certain time. Mm. Uh, and over the next year, year and a half, they started to tear down all of those uh, houses. I was uh, active in the church. Let me tell you this, there's something, when I went overseas and I discovered over there, particularly in Korea, that they were shooting and they were shooting real bullets. And uh, as my dad said, some of them probably had my name on them. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, I don't belong to a church and I could get killed over here. Hmm. And I was worrying about not only getting killed, but going to heaven. So I wrote back to Matilda's church and asked her pastor if he would take me into the church on Christian experience. He wrote back and said, yes, hmm. he would. So when I got out of the military, I attended that church and uh, 
met Matilda again when I wrote to her when I was in uh, uh, the military, uh, I would write her one letter and it would take her like six months to answer. How long have you been hearing this story, Mrs. Blant? For 57 years. Okay, yeah. all right. So, uh, okay, and then let me give some context too. And then I, I didn't even get into the story of how you first met Mrs. Bland, but Black Bottom is a community in Detroit that was definitely known as like the stronghold of Detroit's black community at a time. She lived there. And Mrs. Bland was a part of it and so many of, of the, like the culture, the essence, the spirituality, the businesses, the entrepreneurship was right there in Black Bottom, Detroit. Yes. So what happened, not just in Black Bottom, Detroit, but in many cities across America where black people were seeming to, you know, build their thing culturally, financially, institutionally, for some strange reason, our government puts freeways through these places in eminent domain or puts hospitals or just takes these properties. And Detroit is definitely one of these places. And you can hear a lot of my uh, contemporaries that will speak in radio shows and they can go in depth about this. I just speak on the facts of what I do know that Black Bottom is one of those places. And when you think about most of the stronghold of the history of the richness of Detroit at the time, 30s, 40s, 50s. You think of Black Bottom. You think yes. about so much of Paradise Valley, which is now honored in, in uh, memory. But at the time, it really was a place. It'd be like, uh, for most people, if you could think about this, uh, putting, you know, taking out one of the, you know, it'd be like taking out the Washington Memorial or the White House or cha just changing the location because it's like, oh, it'd be good to put an airport where the Statue of Liberty is right now. And... These are some of the things that the black community always has had gripes with America. And it sometimes can make you be labeled like, okay, you sound fanatical, but these are real things that have always been targets in America. And it's different ways and people justify it. But I, I wanted to give that context for everybody listening because they may not know what Black Bottom is. Mm -hmm. But within that, let's jump right into that story about Mrs. Bland. When did you first meet Mrs. Bland? I first met her... Um, in 1952. 1952? Yes. And I went to church with my brother, and she attended the same church, and that's when I met her. Mm -hmm. And I asked for permission to write to her. And that's, uh, that, that, as that I was, was old school court. Going, oh, yeah. My like, let me get your number and text you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, today, you would call it an early hookup. Oh yeah, yeah, see? yeah, yeah. all right. It was at least that, and okay. uh, so and I'm 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 a writer. I write stuff, so I start to write so to you her. Had some game about and, yourself, and that's when I, you know, wrote. I wrote two letters a year, and she wrote one in response. Okay. But it was almost the next year before she uh, would answer the two letters. But anyway, I forgave her for that. Uh, you obviously, yeah. even though you do bring it up, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Uh, only Kari would think of that. <laughs> <laughs> Kari would. Yeah. Kari would. Yeah. But uh, and uh, that's when we met, and when I came back, and I started to go to church regularly. Okay. Uh, it was then that we started dating. 
Okay. And at that the, was in 1956. In 1956. What was Mrs. Bland doing at the time? She was working. She had uh, working as a stenographer for the uh, federal government. Okay. Yeah. In its uh, ordnance division where they uh, got contracts and ordered equipment and ordered contractors to build uh, military equipment. Okay. So back in Detroit, when did you go back to school at that point? Because I know it was heavy in your mind. I went back as uh, the fall of uh, 1956. Where did you start? And uh, at uh, Detroit Institute Technology mm -hmm. that used to be where Comerica Park is now. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't even know. Yeah, what, it what was attached to the uh, YMCA. Okay, I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And uh, so my plan was to get a PhD by the time I was 30. Mm -hmm. So meeting Matilda uh, detoured all of that. Okay. So I didn't get my bachelor's until I was 19, 32. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we had two gorgeous children by then, and uh, and I went to work uh, at the Board of Education, and uh, that's where I met uh, your grandmother. Mm -hmm. She uh, worked at the Presbyterian Church that was right on Preston and uh, the Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Ed Alderdice was the uh, minister there. And uh, I was uh, a truant officer, and I had families, one family particularly with nine children, and they had a hard time finding uh, places to live. And so I would stop in from time to time to talk with uh, your grandmother and Reverend Alderdice, and uh, we had become friends. And uh, I said, during that time, you could get a house, uh, rent to buy, and the and you could put like four or five hundred dollars down on the house. Mm -hmm and then you could move into it. So I talked to your grandmother about that and she said, well, how much do you think you're gonna need? I said, well, if we had probably eight or $900. And uh, she said, well, see how much you can raise and then bring that here and we'll talk. Okay, how much did you raise? So five, $500. Okay. And uh, of which I think 150 my wife and I threw put in. in. Put in. Mm -hmm. So I went back and, and talked, and we talked, and she said, okay, okay, we can put in three or $400 here. Mm -hmm. And it happened. They found a house, uh, rent to buy. They put $800 down on it and they had $100, $150 left over to buy some things for the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, out of the nine children that they had, before I left the attendance department, three of them had graduated huh. from Kettering. Huh. And the others were doing well in uh, middle school uh, and uh, junior high. 
Okay. Yeah. So it was that kind of thing that uh, your your grandmother just had a great deal of savvy mm-hmm. for, like you have, and and a quickness like your mom too, and. She had a real quickness for that. And sometimes I would just kind of stop by and say, well, what is it now? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would tell her, and on one occasion, uh, I told her that uh, we gave out shoes to uh, indigent children. Mm-hmm. And my supervisor said, we ought to give them used shoes first. And then if they can't wear those, then we should give them, get them new shoes. Well, I flipped that around because in the winter, you ain't got no business giving nobody no used shoes. So I gave them new shoes in the winter. And he fussed me about that and fussed me about that. And, uh, and I would carry shoes that uh, your grandmother helped me to collect in the trunk of my car. And I didn't want to have to go get them or go buy any. I wanted to bring in, you know, when the mama tell me what she needed, then I would get that. Mm-hmm. And um, she helped me enormously to be a, uh, a successful person in what, doing that work. Well, that's deep just because my grandma, mother dear, or Mary Brown, is uh, definitely with the relationship I had my sister Dar and I have with her is so different than the rest of the grandkids because she worked while everybody else was a grandchild. Yeah. Whereas she was retired when we were grandchildren. Yeah. Right. So we were like by her side almost all the time. We were yeah. either by my mom's side or by my, by my grandma's side. Right. And of that, because th- that's what made the connection so close between myself and my and mother dear. That's and true. even my connection towards anybody else is like a senior and whatever, just because it's the wisdom but in that you're the only person outside of my family that knew my grandma when she was that knew my that i know knows my grandma that i can speak to now you're the only person and that was another reason why i was like dr bland definitely has to be on the show so with that being said now from that work as a truancy officer that led you you always said okay i'm gonna be a college professor mm-hmm. Did that give you like a different perspective on how you want to interact with not just the students, but the families of the students? Or like, how, how did like you, as you were preparing to step in the role as a teacher, how did that prepare you to say, okay, now I'm ready to go into a classroom, but I have a different look at what's happening with the student as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I had uh, always been close to the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother was a missionary worker, my father, was uh, was a deacon. Matilda's father was a deacon. He caused me to be uh, a deacon. And uh, I had developed what I thought to be uh, a philosophy that was reflective of what Christ advised us to be and to become. And uh, it uh, turned out to be a blessing Mm-hmm. Because when I uh, actualized love your neighbor as you love yourself, it gave me a different way of thinking, not only about myself, but about other people. 
it helped me to develop uh, not I don't want to say a fearlessness but it helped me to develop <coughs> a cordiality toward anyone that I met regardless of their condition mm -hmm. so when do you step in as a teacher when was the first class you taught even if you were a substitute what where how did you start teaching well I started teaching when I um, uh, was working toward a bachelor's degree I did a, a teaching um, I was a student teacher at Eastern Michigan hmm. okay. uh, University uh, and during that time I worked as a uh, as, as a janitor and boiler operator at a Presbyterian church mm -hmm. and uh, that was my job biscuits, broken down cars, rent, doctor's bills, and other things. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my work. And there's a difference between a job and work. Um, and the difference is a job I want to be paid for. Work, I would do it free. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to do it free. But, and I think that's a distinction that you need to know. In during uh, student teaching, and I had taught Sunday school, you know, several years mm -hmm. prior to that, that is also teaching when you are attempting to get people to understand uh, morality and not only to understand it but to practice it mm -hmm. is as difficult as any math class or class that I taught in uh, in public school mm -hmm. uh, and I love teaching okay and still do what whereabouts what what time at Eastern Michigan were you a student teacher what year uh, let's see I graduated in uh, 64 65 okay all right and then from there where did you take on the next role as a teacher I did not go back into uh, the classroom as a teacher until I started work at uh, at Merrill Palmer Institute. Do you know okay. anything about Merrill Palmer? I have Palmer? no idea what Merrill Palmer Institute is, sir. What is that? Merrill Palmer is, uh, was and still is a college in downtown Detroit that trained uh, young people in uh, family life, uh, the uh, social science of working with families, uh, working in the areas of uh, psychology, uh, community development. Hmm. This seems like I should have heard of this place. So it's like and a lot of people that work with like social service or um, social work or anything like within nonprofit or philanthropy will go to an institution like this? No, college students. Oh, just regular came from college students. All over the world. Okay. To uh, to take classes at uh, Merrill Palmer. Okay. The uh, persons that did the most uh, uh, to support Merrill Palmer were basically um, uh, socialite uh, white women from the suburban communities. There were few uh, 
black people uh, on the board that uh, uh, supported that. Uh, Horace Sheffield. Uh, okay, Horace Dorothy. Sheffield the second, as in that started Debo. Yes. That Sheffield. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Uh, he was on the board. Definitely want to make that uh, distinction. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Whitten's wife and hmm. uh, people of that uh, ilk. Okay. And uh, we had, there was a graduate program. Uh, you could get a master's degree in uh, humanistic uh, psychology. What? I started out there as a faculty member and a uh, community relations director for Skillman Center. Okay, so what did you do in that capacity? Well, they had an after-school tutoring and recreational program, hmm. and I was the supervisor uh, of that. The classes that I taught were uh, family life classes, uh, community development. Jim Boyce, I don't know whether any of you know Jim Boyce or not, he was a, uh, a member of the faculty there. Dorothy uh, Kispert mm -hmm. uh, was also a member of the faculty there. Uh, when it fell on uh, bad times because they hired a, uh, a gentleman to be the president. And he was single um, at that time, 60, and I was the vice president one of the vice presidents, there mm -hmm. were two. And uh, he had a research background and wanted to do research on uh, black boys. Mm -hmm. And the community frowned on that. Hmm. And in their frowning on that, uh, they uh, picketed Merrill Palmer. During the same time that was happening, we also received a grant, a Head Start grant. And the community said, well, if Merrill Palmer's got a white man that wants to research black boys, then Merrill Palmer doesn't need to get the Head Start grant. Uh, we got it anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, the president went to Washington to talk about Detroit. And of course, uh, Coleman Young was the president, I mean the mayor then. And uh, someone in Washington called back to Detroit and told Detroit that there was a white man up there talking about doing research on black boys. And uh, the rest is history. Bob Bland became the acting president. The president got fired. Uh, his girlfriend, whom he'd hired, got fired, and uh, the city of Detroit decided that uh, they needed to do uh, something different with the uh, Head Start program. We still played a role in uh, teaching the teachers because we had a lot of expertise in uh, early childhood, uh, okay. in early childhood development. So from there, what was the next step? Well. It was during that time that I was the acting president slash undertaker that uh, I saw the ad in the uh, newspaper about Lewis College of Business. Okay. 
and I had been the acting president for a couple of years then. And I said, well, there's my dream job, mm -hmm. at least one of them. And so I sent a resume to uh, Marjorie Harris, mm -hmm. who was the president, and um, she said, yes, we think we would like to have you as huh. a, a vice president even, huh. and faculty member. So that's in a couple of months that job started, and um, I stayed there 26 years. I gave up, I think it was twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in pay, and uh, so I decided that since that was my dream job and I was going to stay there and they needed me to stay there, that I would just start drawing a part of my pension. Hmm. And uh, I didn't do that until I was in my 50s. Hmm. And by that time we had uh, a son in uh, college and uh, a daughter ready to go to college. How did that discussion go with Mrs. Blaine? She's never, over all the years that I worked toward getting a PhD, she never fussed. Okay. She always helped me to, she typed the papers and proofread them, and uh, so she was a blessing. Okay. So she was a part of that journey with you. She was a part of the throughout journey. Throughout the whole way. Yes. And then later, she went back and got a... Uh, uh, to seminary and got a degree in theology, and she's now an ordained minister. Okay. And we teach a Bible class together. Hmm. She's the supervisor, and I'm the leg man. Okay. Doing the work. Okay. Yeah. But uh, that wasn't actually true. We both do the work. <laughs> 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 Sounds like a smart man. Sounds like a man that's been married. How long you all been married? 57 years. 57. We're in our 57th year. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That is definitely not just in America that's rare, but in the African-American community, that is like you just rarely see something like that. So over time and with this commitment to something, because you're, you're very creative, too. Uh, you're you're also a historian. You teach a lot of classes. Let's go. Let's go back to that. What what's one of your fa favorite classes to teach or subjects? Well, uh, I have some skills in math and um, and uh, history. Uh, I love uh, history, and I love to uh, think about, talk about, and. Uh, teach about morality. Mm -hmm. Some of that is through the church, but some of it is just good old-fashioned being a good citizen, being a contributing citizen, and being honest, mm -hmm. and understanding what life is all about. Okay. Yeah. But the, uh, the history part, uh, on one occasion, when I was working uh, with the University of Michigan before I went to Merrill Palmer, I was giving a talk at Jameson School that is on uh, West Philadelphia and uh, to a group of uh, fourth graders. Okay. 
And I just kind of floated out. I said, how do you think our people got here from Africa? Well, you know, they, they went wild. They walked here. Uh, they were swimming to get here. And, you know, they came up with all kinds of answers. And I said, oh, my God, I've got serious work to do. Mm. If they are saying those kinds of things, what are people saying who taught them back when? What's mama and daddy saying? So when I was a boy, I was born in uh, 1933. Mm -hmm. And when I was like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, there were still people alive who had been born into enslavement. They were in their 80s, somewhere in their 90s, but they were still around. Mm -hmm. And one of, a good friend of my family was Miss Parthene Clark. And she would visit our house uh, one, like once a month. And she was 13 at Emancipation Proclamation. Hmm. And uh, she would tell us stories. Uh, and she made the best blackstrap molasses cookies. I've never even heard of that. Black strap molasses cookies. Yeah. So it's like, I'm guessing like a black strap of molasses through the cookie? Uh, it's made out of uh, 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 sorghum molasses, but when you, you have them that you grow on the farm, uh, it is not cleaned up, it is not purified. So you take it for what it is, and you use it, uh, and you, you, you can use it like sugar. You mm. can use it to sweeten things, and uh, yeah, Nabisco kind of is not kicking those out right now, right? Sir. And so anyway, uh, she would tell us stories. Okay. All kinds of stories about, uh, and when she would come to our house, uh, whether it was summer or winter, she wore long underwear year round, <laughs> and she wore dresses down to even, her ankles. I don't even want to get into and like you long could always see. A long underwear. Topic. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and she didn't care whether or not you saw them uh -huh. or not. Yeah. And uh, sometimes when uh, she lived about, uh, about a mile, maybe a mile and a quarter from us. Mm -hmm. And so when she came to visit us, we had to give up our beds and sleep on the floor because my mother would never let her go back, walk back when it started to yeah, uh, get sense. dark. Yeah. Makes sense. And uh, so I had things that my mother had accumulated and that Miss Clark had given us, our family, and I started to look at those. I had been collecting uh, black books for, for years, and my mother had a whole collection of magazines with black things in them, black articles and mm -hmm. articles about black folks. So I went through all of those things and what I discovered was uh, that we had material on the Middle Passage. Hmm. So it was then that I started to get that together and collect additional books and um, I got an exhibit together of uh, the Middle Passage. And at first, I uh, just had it on mounted cardboard and 
that sort of thing. But then I started to make it more sophisticated mm -hmm. and given the skills that I had from uh, my youth, I uh, built some models of slave ships <laughs> because children understand imagery. Imagery. A whole lot more, especially if they yeah. can touch it. Right, yes. And um, so when the first black museum opened up, we had some uh, articles about the Middle Passage in the museum and a model of uh, one of the Baltimore Clippers, the Dorsal Migos, which was uh, an early slave ship. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a model of that. Later, when they decided that that museum was too small by that time, I had collected a very significant uh, collection of uh, pictures, coins, uh, shackles, all of those kinds of things. And I had them on display at Lewis. I remember in the conference room, it yes. would wrap around the conference room. Yes. There was nothing, it was like one of the biggest exhibits you see specifically mm -hmm. about the Middle Passage. Yes. And uh, I had built, uh, when my grandfather, my grandmother got married uh, in the 1890s, uh, he had purchased a chest of drawers. And uh, my mother inherited those. And uh, after using it for uh, 25, 30, 40 years beyond my grandparents' use of that, it just fell apart. Mm -hmm. My mother did not want to get rid of the wood. So we tied the wood up in a bundle, and when we moved to Detroit, we brought the bundle of wood hmm. and put it in the garage. And when my parents had passed, and my brother and I went over to uh, fix up the house so that one of my nieces could raise six or seven of her brothers and sisters after my sister had died. So I got the bundle of wood and brought it to my house. We tore down the garage. And as a result of that, when I got ready to build a large clipper ship, I wanted to use wood that had come from that era when they were still using sailing slave ships. Mm -hmm. I mean sailing ships as slave ships. So I used the wood out of uh, that chest of drawers to build the base for it and to build the hull. And I still have that ship uh, at home and some others. And uh, it went into the new museum, the museum mm -hmm. that is there now and was there for uh, about eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. And included in that was uh, the names of uh, uh, 8,000 slave ships, hmm. which was about a third of the number of total ships used in the uh, enslavement of uh, black people out of Africa. As you may or may not know, the Arabs uh, had a slave trade out of uh, East Africa that was twice as large as the European slave trade out of West Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and uh, their own scholars say that they probably moved and landed in various parts of Asia, uh, 25 to 30 million African people. Uh, we claim over here that it was closer to 15 million landing in the in South America, Central America, parts of Canada, and North America. Uh, but that does not uh, indicate the large number who did not make it mm -hmm. across the Atlantic, or across the Indian Ocean, uh, or across the Mediterranean. Uh, John Henry Clark said that for every 10 that started, one got either to the Western Hemisphere or to Asia and uh, in and, and Europe. And see, this is why I think you're such a gem in the information you have. Because I got into, I almost got kicked out of class in my, in my black history class taught by a white man over this same, this very same fact. It was black history taught by a white man and he specifically wanted to touch on the slave era. Right. And he's like a modern historian. Because yes. this, is, this is another reason why I really don't like education because I think it's loops inside of education that rebukes and suppresses critical thinking sure. and thought process. Yes. Because the, the his, historical process is this. <clears throat> Even like the educational process, he'd explain it because he's a military mm -hmm. uh, historian, uh, foremost military historian. And uh, he, he'd explain the process like, for something first off to be taken as history, the first thing is it needs to be 30, day, 30 years after the fact. Because I'd always challenge him. I'm like, if you're a military and war historian, you need to be studying 9-11 right now. And he's like, well, it's not long enough after the fact. I was like, see, this is why we have problems with why stuff happens. That was one thing. The second thing is 30 years after the fact, the second thing is you have to look at how the information is vetted. So it has to be a process where not only you as a historian looking for the information has to verify it, you also have to have a series of peers that are agreed upon by a council to say that this information is true and not true. So I'm in class and I'm telling him, now logically, I'm gonna say, I don't know exactly all of the figures, but I'm just using common sense and logic right here. I told him, I was like, a lot of people died during the Middle Passage. And he said, no, because the records taken by the slave keepers show that there was at least an 85% survival rate on most of the slave ships. And now this is what's believed by him and most of his peers. And he's an aforementioned historian. And I was like, that makes no sense. Just on the strength of, it's not like that we were treated like, uh, you know, precious cargo. And furthermore, at the time, you know, it's not like they had all types of medicine anyway. And it's not like they're like making sure you get your right amount of protein and make sure you're drinking the right uh, juices and making sure you got enough water. At the time, the survival rate, even if you weren't enslaved and in shackles, was very low to make that trip sure. from through the Atlantic. But let alone if you're in the bowels of ship on top of somebody that may be dying, defecating on top of you, pregnant, throwing up on you, you know? So it's a very gruesome history and this sounds very dark and tragic and I'm debating with them and I'm like, common sense would tell you that you cannot survive that with, with modern medicine. And his response to me was, well, you know, 
My wife grew up on the farm and she sometimes says sometimes the cows get treated better than her because they can make money. And I was like, if you're going to tell me that, and this is how I almost got kicked out of college classes. Like I'm saying, I have a history getting kicked out of classes. So I was like, if you believe that, you gotta, that's got to be one of the most ridiculous things you can say in a group full of people in a class. And then he was like, oh, we shouldn't talk about this. So I was like, ah. You know, but it's these types of thoughts. True. And then the other black students were in the class like, man, you make sense. And it's like, I, I hate to back most professors in corners like that. But sure. sometimes it gets to the point, especially about issues like this that I am familiar with, sure. that logically nobody's looking at. And the Middle Passage is one of the most gruesome yeah. looks at American life. And I always hear the, you know, well, black people were involved <clears throat> in the slave trade, too. But it's like, okay, now, the black people that were involved in the slave trade had a different type of slave trade. This was one of the few slave trades that was, it was, it was being enslaved in Africa at the time. And this is me getting on my high horse of history, so listen to me. Being enslaved in Africa at the time, you were generally a soldier, and you were taken in as a prisoner of war. And it's not like your whole family and the lineage of your family, therefore, after would be enslaved. You were accepted as someone that was a warrior. You were at war against a tribe, so now you're enslaved. And then also, if you were enslaved in Africa, it's a different type of enslavement. If you were a warrior, but by trade you were a hunter, you would then be a hunter. Mm -hmm. That's not what was going on with the transatlantic slave trade, right. which really most of the gruesome stuff happened in the Caribbean islands, where it was really bad. The sugar, mm -hmm. even right now, I mean, some would say what's happening in the sugar industry is still like slavery. Right. Yes. But, uh, you know, producing sugar, and Lord knows I love sugar, has always been a commodity that has led to many deaths in the... Um, some of the most grim things in history so gems like yourself that are very familiar and you do have a phd and you and you familiarize yourself with this information and you know how to present it and well sometimes comes across so much better than me just being a rapper just you know going back and forth against you know a group of white dudes that have you know volumes of phds that consider themselves historians on something like my history that I'm more familiar with. So knowing that people like you exist, knowing that people like Dale Rich exist, knowing people like Paul Lee exist, that explain the process of what being historian is and the historical process, which is nothing is completely solid, but it's fallacies in a lot of stuff that's accepted as history. And you were actually the first person to make me say, okay, I got to start studying some Genghis Khan just from what you used to say about the way that things would happen with Genghis Khan. Yes. And you are definitely deep into the story as a historian, deep into history. I'm applauding you on that fact. You can take this rant, play it over again in Black History Month. If you want to share this with somebody else. And I definitely want to share that because your, your journey with that and even your ties to the, the stories of the Middle Passage, and it's such a gruesome part of America's history. Yeah, sure. But it's definitely, the, you know, America's ain't necessarily the prettiest place. So sure. with that being said, what are you going to do with uh, your exhibits now? Well, I still have it. And uh, given the kind of children that I have, uh, they will do something with it. Mm -hmm. uh, before I sleep, I will do something with uh, parts of it so that uh, it's available uh, for other people uh, to use. I think that uh, we have an enormous responsibility 
because it is said that uh, three or four hundred million people died as a result of slavery and the slave trade. Mm -hmm. There is no way under the sun we can let that happen on this planet and not do anything about it. Mm -hmm. If the people are green, we should be doing something about it. Mm -hmm. But they were black. So you know we should be doing something about it. Our children mm -hmm. should know this is what your people went through. This is what they endured. And black women, more often than not, bore the heaviest burden of enslavement. Not only just doing the work, but being raped, mm -hmm. being mistreated, having babies cut out of their bellies. And black women have been the mules of history anyway. Mm -hmm. And so our children and our grandchildren and us should never, never play light with the notion that our people were enslaved. When I was a boy, the, the people who had been enslaved, that you would ask them questions and stuff, and they would say, my people don't want me to talk about that stuff. That's what they would say. Mm -hmm. Because we had created some kind of crazy notion that folks who were enslaved were dumb, they couldn't talk to elephants like Tarzan does, and all of that kind of crap. Mm -hmm. That's the way people were thinking in their heads. And here we had people suffering. You think the beheading and the disembowelment of people and all like that did not exist mm -hmm. during that time? It did. And, and there, there are all kinds of stories. I can remember when I was putting this together, I was working down in my basement, and there were times when I would become so angry I couldn't function. Mm -hmm. And other times when I become so sad. I would cry. How did anyone sit idly by and let this happen? And so it became precious. Mm -hmm. To me that I have got to tell this story. If nobody else tells it, I have got to tell it. Well, I'm definitely glad that you've told it, and I'm definitely glad that you've committed yourself so much to education. As we're coming closer to the end, my last question, then I'm going to open up and see if anybody else has a question, but my last question would be, where do you see education headed? Because I still am in the mix about it especially as it's become more of a business nowadays. Where do you see education headed as an institution? That's the first thing. And then secondly, how do you feel people should use it? Well, uh, number one, uh, we should struggle in our community with whatever uh, 
resources we have to make sure that our children know our story and are emboldened from knowing our story to get as much education as they can. Now, I don't mean just schooling. Mm -hmm. I mean from reading, from studying, from interacting with people, all of that. See, education is really, schooling is a part of education. Okay. Schooling is not education. Education is good manners, mother wit, learning to respect your elders. That's education. Appreciation for work, appreciation for doing physical work, sweating, and that's education. Schooling is a part of that. Mm-hmm. And if you have the other education, schooling should be a snap for you. Okay. So that answered both. I don't know if we have any questions on the floor from anybody. Comments, questions. So no questions, no comments. Thank you so much for being a guest. I couldn't think of anybody better when it came to education to be a guest. Dr. Bland, I can't wait to get this into the sphere of iTunes and the iTunes Nation and Detroit is different. This was one of my favorites. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, it is uh, an honor and a pleasure uh, to know you. Oh, Dr. Bland. Uh, because, uh, and it is an honor and a pleasure to know your, your, all of your family. Thank you. But I found you to be uh, a very honest person. Uh, when you were in uh, my class uh, at Lewis, Mm-hmm. Uh, it appeared <laughs> like you came to class with about 40 questions. <laughs> 35 was the not do. And, <laughs> and, oh, and you always to do. <laughs> wanted to ask at least 20 of those. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the time. And, uh, and, and I hope I was able to answer at least four or five of them. You, you. But, uh. You, one of my favorite uh, diatribes, it wasn't even me. I think it was, I can't even remember his name, but I want to say it was DeAndre. And we were in class, and I was like, man, we shouldn't even be learning this thing, man. This is, it. I'm in here because it's going to be a connection because I got to work with my dad and do this accounting stuff. I don't want to be in here. And then, and then you were like, no, it's going to be something, you know. And then I'm like, oh, that's Dr. Bland being Dr. Bland. And then uh, DeAndre pitched in, and he was like, yeah, you know, it's like the colonel. <laughs> I try to say this whenever I can. He was like, <laughs> it's not like the colonel going to show you the 11 herbs and spices and tell you to get on. You're going to have to get it somewhere. <laughs> and then Dr. Blair stopped for a second. He tied it together, and he was like, I bet you the colonel knew enough about agriculture to get it going. And so then we just we go keep going, and that's how class was all the time. <laughs> class was just a back and forth thing of all types of stuff. So it was always 
enjoyable, so much fun. One day I'm gonna have to look into your library, see if I can borrow some books. That's, that's the only thing I'd say. You can. All right, thank you so much. And thank you, thank you for coming. You're very honored. <laughs>